Aloha and welcome to the last episode of 90% Mental Ultra Distance Paddling Adventures for the year 2023. Can you believe it? What an amazing year of racing it's been. December 2nd wrapped up the last ultra endurance paddling race for this year with the last paddler standing. And if you didn't watch it, what an exciting event. Be sure to check it out on YouTube and be on the lookout for the next episode where I'll talk story with one of the contestants. Well, this year wasn't all about racing. It was also about setting records, which is exactly what team Mississippi Speed Records set out to do earlier this year. Believe it or not, the record was established in 1937 and has been beat several times. However, 2023 was something special, and I got a chance to talk story with the new Guinness Book of World Record holders for the fastest time to complete the entire stretch of the Mississippi River. Don't forget to show the show some love by hitting that support the show button, and I hope you enjoy the final episode of the year. Um, I want to send a warm welcome, uh, because it's freezing outside here in the Pacific Northwest, to Team Mississippi Speed Record version 2023. How's it going, guys? Going great. Good. Thank great. you. Yeah, so you're all kind of on here from different areas of the U.S., um, so I kind of just want to start off with introductions, because some of you I haven't spoken to or um, I don't think met. I've met all of you in person. If I have, I apologize. I've just met so many people. I know Paul and I have done several races together, um, and I know I've seen a, you know a few of you at other races as well. So um, I would like to just start off with Paul Cox. Just introduce yourself. Where are you from? Where do you live at the moment? And what got you into ultra endurance paddling? Um, yeah, I'm Paul Cox. I'm from Atlanta, Georgia. Um, yeah, what got me into endurance paddling? I think um, just love the outdoors, love being by the water. So it was just kind of a natural thing for me to to like to sit in the boat for a long time. And I think as much as anything, I just enjoy hanging out with uh, other people. So being part of a team and being a, uh, having a chance to to paddle uh, with these fine fellows was something I just didn't want to pass up. So that is, that's why I did it. Awesome. Paul, thank you for sharing that. All right, I'll go next. My name is uh, Wally Werderick. I, I live in Yorkville, Illinois, which is a suburb of Chicago. And um, I, I've been a, a canoe paddler, uh, both a, an endurance junkie and uh, just somebody who likes to get out on the river for my whole life. I started in, in, uh, in Cub Scouts and have been doing it ever since. Got into ultra endurance racing because I um, read in a magazine somewhere that would be a great way to impress uh, the ladies in your life. And I thought maybe that would be a way that that my wife would look at me with a little bit of a sparkle in her eye. So, yeah. <laughs> I love that. That's awesome. <laughs> Did it work? Oh, oh, yeah. 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 She's all over me. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Scott, what you got? My name is Scott Miller, and I'm sitting a few blocks west of the Mississippi River here in South Minneapolis. And uh, in 2005, my my first one guy and then another guy, uh, we paddled 2,000 miles from Minneapolis to Hudson Bay. We were retracing a trip taken in 1930. Uh, so that was my first real ultra endurance trip, but it wasn't for speed. 
I only uh, got interested in the racing and ultra endurance racing world once I uh, had a goal to set this record. That's that's what got me into the community and and into some of the races. All right. Uh, well, I'm Judson or Judd. Sometimes folks call me uh, Steinbeck, and I live in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Um, it's a small city in southwestern Wisconsin, also right on the Mississippi River. I'm really fortunate in that my backyard is it actually is the mississippi river um so training becomes relatively easy uh, in that sense um you know i i came into the world of of what i call true ultra distance racing um with the mississippi speed record um prior to that my my main um races were things like in the usca or um you know, I had done Ruta Mayo with Joe Mann, and that's a 175-mile race, but it's broken into four days. And the Asabo Canoe Marathon is 120 miles, which, relatively speaking, sort of short races compared to a lot of the races that are done in the in the ultra world. So this this was Scott Miller who pulled me into this uh, ultra ultra scene. So the reason you guys are on the show today is because you're going to be talking about uh, sharing your experience about uh, setting the Mississippi speed record. And I know that uh, this this quest to set the Mississippi speed record actually began in 1937, which is incredible. And I believe that it was actually um, set by a pair of rowers, if I'm not mistaken. I don't. I don't even remember. Uh, that that may well be the case. Do, uh, do you guys remember? Was that was that you who did that, Scott? Were you in the rowboat? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I looked it up. I did my homework. <laughs> um, from what I from what I can see, it was so the the quest, like I said, began in 1937 um, by Joe Tag, Gerald Capers, and Charles Saunders. Um, it took them 56 days, and that was, um, for all of you listening that don't know how long the Mississippi River is, it, it begins in uh, Lake it- Itasca, I believe it's pronounced, in uh, northern Minnesota, and flows all the way 2,348 miles until it pours into the Gulf of Mexico. So we're talking like a really, really long way. You're going through 30, what is it, 33 states? Um, well, the Mississippi basically drains... 33 states and its watershed covers one half of the nation which is incredible so it's a it's a very very large distance to cover uh very impressed um and then it looks like again in 1978 um the record was set a second time by a british royal air force team at 42 days and five hours and some minutes and then again in 1980 uh set a new world record at 35 days 11 hours and 27 minutes and since then it's been broken several times um moving on to uh well i guess kind of backtracking in 19 1948 uh or maybe i'm reading that wrong there was one in for 23 days and 10 hours 1989 23 days and 19 hours so you can see you know it went from 56 days to to 23 days, nine hours. And then again, fast forwarding May 10th, 2003, 18 days, four hours and 51 minutes. So I'm going to stop there and kind of want to talk about 2018. So uh, was it, who, who wants to talk about kind of 
2018. Does anyone anyone know more about that record attempt? Oh yeah, Scott Scott's your man on that one. Scott's All right, Scott. Okay, so um, in 2018 there was a team of three that were trying to set the record, and I found out about it and was watching them on Facebook, and they didn't do great. They they made it to Iowa before calling it quits. Um, I mean, they actually did pretty good, but they weren't, they weren't really, it wasn't going to happen for them. They weren't going to set the record. And, uh, there was a, there was a guy who looked to be in his late fifties on the team. And I thought that he might have more in the tank. So I reached out to him to see if he'd be interested in trying again. And that, that was where I got the idea to try to set the Mississippi speed record is by being inspired by the 2018 three-person team. As it turned out, the guy that I reached out to, KJ Milhone, he had actually set the record in 1980. He's one of the attempts you just mentioned. So when he was a young guy, him and his friend uh, set the record, which is totally amazing. And then it's kind of a long story, but um, which we can get into or not. But for various reasons, he was trying again in 2018 with two young guys. And uh, yeah, they didn't make it, but I reached out to him and and he didn't see my message for a couple months um, because we weren't Facebook friends, but then he finally <laughs> saw it and, uh, and he, uh, he and I started talking and we got interested and we thought we should have a four person team. And then he, he asked me if his 17 year old daughter could be on the team. And I was like, sure, if she does all the training. Um, and then we got another guy from Wisconsin um, and we started training and we were going to go in 2020. Uh, but then the coronavirus came and there was at the, the beginning of the pandemic, there was stay at home orders and lockdown orders. And we a big part of this setting this world record is logistics and strategy. And we so we had an extensive support team and there was just I didn't feel comfortable gathering that many people, you know, to break the stay at home orders. We weren't supposed to be crossing state lines. We weren't really supposed to be leaving our houses. So um, we kind of had a falling out. Uh, and so the team was wrecked and the attempt was wrecked. And then what ended up happening is KJ formed his team with his daughter and I formed a new team and we had rival attempts in 2021. So I can tell that story at some point, but let me put a pause there. Wow. Love it. Love the rivalry. So we talked about the history of the record. Um, does someone kind of want to cover, um, you know, what, what made it something worth doing? Because I know in, I believe it was in 20, yeah, the 2021 um, Team MM0 sets a new record. I know Rod Price and Bobby Johnson uh, were on that team along with KJ and Casey. Um, they called themselves Team Mile Marker Zero. Um, it, it, they um, launched April 22nd, 2021 and beat the, beat the 2003 record by nine hours, five minutes, establishing a new record of 17 days, 19 hours and 46 minutes. So in, so team Mississippi uh, speed record, 2021 version versus 2023 version. Who yeah. wants to kind of talk about that? Like what made it, I guess just saying, you know, what what made this something worth doing? So I, I, I'll uh, kind of set the stage for this, but these are really good Scott questions because Scott was a guy that was involved on, on both of the teams. He was involved in the 2021 team and then the 2023 team. Uh, um, 
myself, Paul, and Judd, we were involved on the 2021 team, um, it, but we came in kind of in the vacuum after the uh, um, the record was set by mile marker zero in 2021. Scott's team was right after that, the, uh, the Mississippi speed record um, 2021 team. That team was actually on the water at the same time as the mile marker zero team, both trying to set the record at the same time on the same river. Mile marker zero set the record and uh, Mississippi speed record 2021 was cruising down the river, was behind pace, then eventually got ahead of pace and we're ahead of the record there for mile marker zero. Um, hit a storm within the last hundred or so miles. The canoe that they were in, uh, the the water was so turbulent that the water that the uh, that the canoe literally sank on underneath the from underneath the paddlers, um, and they needed to be rescued. And within you know a hundred miles of the end of the race. That the, the 2020, the Mississippi speed record 2021 effort, which was on track to break the record, um, didn't work out. So, and I, that's setting the stage. Wheels started turning for Scott. All right, I've done this. One, do I want to do it again? And two, how do I make it better? And and I I got to add one thing to to that story, which is. I cannot believe that Scott wanted to do it again. No! <laughs> so, so fortunately for Scott, he was actually sleeping when we passed through the uh, the place where his team, uh, they didn't capsize per se. The, the canoe literally just sank because it filled with so much water. And, wow. and uh, that, that part of the river is just absolutely terrifying. I mean, it, it, it's the scariest situation I've ever been in in paddling in my entire life and uh, hopefully it'll be the scariest situation i'll ever be in in my life in paddling i mean it's just it's like this industrial corridor of of just mayhem all around you and all almost all of the really scary things are not made by nature they're made by humans um i mean there's just like ocean going vessels there's oil tankers there's these little boats i don't really know what they are but i'm in construction and landscaping in my in my uh, professional life and i i called them the bobcats of the water because they just like drive around and move things around and they throw these huge wakes the currents are really strong um the lights there's lights all over the place so some places it's really bright then it's really dark i mean there's fire in the sky Literally yeah, there's fire just fire in the sky. <laughs> you know, you can't breathe because the air is just acrid and and terrible. Um, and by the way, most of the river isn't like this, right? Most of the river is just breathtakingly beautiful and enjoyable to paddle. But this particular section is just horrid. <laughs> and so nobody I, should ever paddle this section of the river during the day, much less like what we did at night in the middle of the night. Correct. And. <laughs> So it's just mind blowing that Scott wanted to do it again, but thank thank God he did because I'm sure we'll get into this 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 trip, which was driving a little bit at your question, like why do we do this? Um, it, it's it's just transformational for all of us. It's one of the most oh, yeah. incredible life experiences we've ever had. We have this this new family now, these new best friends now. It's just just remarkable uh, this experience. 
I love that. Yeah, I totally, I totally get that feeling. You know, anytime uh, you're able to experience any stretch of of river anywhere, really, in you know the U.S. and Canada, whether you're by yourselves, by yourself, or with someone else. Um, I know I'm more of a, a solo paddler, but I think if I did something like this, it would be nice to have some friends to do it with who are equally as down for it as I was. <laughs> Well, Jennifer, that, this is something that's kind of fun to, to add to the story, is that uh, um, none of us really knew each other that deeply when, when we were coming into this. I mean, we knew each other from uh, various different activities, and, and we knew, uh, you know, we've raced against each other, and some of us have raced with each other. But this isn't like some deep-rooted group that were, you know, they're fraternity brothers and had a dream of it when they were drinking around the keg one day. No, um, this was something that that um, came together, and I truly think it was kind of like a, a, a blessing. I'm not a religious guy, but it was like a blessing of the cosmos that all of these wonderful people and like minds all came together and uh, um, and work together for this common cause and it was really neat uh, or it might have just been scott choosing really wisely yeah. well i mean so <laughs> so the deal is that the first team in 2021 were not people from the ultra endurance paddle racing world at all because i wasn't familiar with that world hadn't didn't know anything about that world so i was recruiting just people who were good at paddling but the guy who started the Missouri River 340, Scott Mansker, he got he got wind of this way back in like 2019. And he said, hey, I'll be your support boat crew leader because out of all the people in the world, there's really nobody more qualified to, to run support for this world record trip than Scott Mansker because the race he runs on the Missouri, 340 miles, he's done it for like 18 years. And he has a whole fleet of boats and volunteers, and they're all experts at supporting long-distance paddle people on these rivers. And so it was like unbelievably flattering that he was offering his services. And then in 2021, he was like, hey, I, I know you're training again, or maybe it was actually 2020. Uh, he said, you should really come and do the 340. You'll learn a lot. And so I did, and I actually paddled the 340 with Bobby and... Uh, and uh, <laughs> uh, Rod, Bobby and Rod, who, you know, so it's it's just a little world of, it's a very niche world, as you know, the ultra distance paddling community. And, um, you know, both MM0 2021 uh, and then our attempt in 2023 were heavily, heavily, heavily influenced and grew and learned because of the experience of people in the ultra distance paddle racing community. And, my teammates, Judd and Paul and Wally, are amazing guys, and they're and they, you have to have the right personality, and they all have the right personality. They're teamwork oriented, but they also all have experience in that world of ultra distance paddle racing. And I think it, the reason we did so well and the reason we set the record is because of how it, how amazing that community is, and because of their experience, and then my experience and Scott Mansker's experience in that community. So Scott Mansker was involved in this 2023 record? He was involved in the 2021 record. And then when I asked him to do it again in 2023, he did not want to do it. And he almost said no, but then he said yes. And he regretted it and thought it was stupid. 
but now he's happy that he did because <laughs> he had a lot of trauma from the first trip, as did I. And both of us healed our trauma by going back to the source of our pain. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was having like wicked PTSD in the in the hundred miles leading up to that, and then coming down from it afterwards. You know, it was it was really intense, and we didn't we didn't almost die in those waters two years prior, but it was it was really scary. <laughs> right. <laughs> and it sounds like have, it. Yeah, the other thing I have to say is that. When I first was going to do the 2023 attempt, the first people I asked were Paul Cox and Joe Mann because I briefly met them at the great Alabama 650. And when I met them, they were joking around and having a great time. And I was like, these guys are awesome. Not only did they just break their own course record and are like incredible paddlers, but they seem to have great senses of humor and great sense of teamwork. This is exactly the kind of guys I need. And they both said yes. Uh, probably, I think I probably played them off each other. Like, hey, Paul, Joe said he would do it. And I told Joe, hey, Joe, Paul said he would do it. <laughs> I believe it. <laughs> so I got to say something really quick about this. Um, and, and that is that we had the privilege of staying uh, one night during a training camp at uh, Dale Saunders' house, Dale Graybeard Saunders' house. He holds the Guinness record for being the oldest uh, person to solo canoe the entire Mississippi River. He did that at 87. And when we were training down in Tennessee, um, he hosted us at his home. And he pulled me aside and he said, you know, Scott Miller can convince anywhere, anyone in the entire world to do anything. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I know. <laughs> so um, Scott is a very compelling person, but for all the right reasons. But but see, my ace in the hole was Joe Mann, because once Joe and Paul were on the team, eventually we were trying to figure out, you know, a fourth person and we figured out Wally. And then for for personal reasons and circumstances, Joe had to step back and be the backup. Well, actually, even before that, we wanted a backup. And Joe suggested uh, Judd because they had done the, the Ruta Maya together. So basically, the, the connection between all of us is really Joe Mann. And he... He was able to come with on some training trips when, for example, Judd couldn't come, I think. Um, yeah. And so it was really like a five-man team and with, with Joe Mann as the linchpin. And Joe Mann is, like I said, everything comes out of the ultra-distance paddle community, particularly the 340, but to some degree the 650 too. And, you know, I know Joe holds, I think he holds a record in the 340 and Joe and Paul hold a record in the 650. So it was really like, because of the 2021 team that I had, I think I demonstrated, okay, like we were going to set the record if it wasn't for this storm. And so it was like, okay, the, I think I had a little bit of credibility with these guys and with people in the ultra distance paddle community. Like, okay, clearly this guy almost set the record. And so then it was like, well, now let me get the best paddlers in the nation. And fortunately I got this team and it was just amazing. Did you hear that? He's just said we're the best paddlers in the nation. <laughs> yeah, I, heard, I, heard. I heard it. I heard it for the record. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. no doubt in my mind <laughs> that's funny to the silent one who i have i don't think i've heard talking too much <clears throat> paul cox are you still with us <laughs> i am i'm just uh enjoying the uh the tales these guys can spin i had two three weeks of it on the river and it just has never stopped <laughs> <laughs> so 
so th- this is going to be a question for for Paul. Hopefully, um, you're able to answer this. But so talk about the canoe. Talk about the craft. How how did you go about choosing the craft that you knew was not going to sink? Hopefully, and you know, comfortable for everyone. Just kind of talk about what you chose, if you had to modify it, and how all that went. Sure. Yeah. Um, so. I'm from the South, obviously, and our rivers are a lot different than what these guys are used to. So um, on the Mississippi, it's it, it like you said, it starts in Lake Tasca. It's just really, really narrow, like 10 feet wide. And it just weaves through all this marshland. It's just beautiful. And there's like these little rapids that you run over uh, or through and beaver dams and it gradually widens. And by the time you get to Minneapolis, it's, it's, it's huge. And then it just continues to grow and grow all the way down to um, past New Orleans. So we needed a boat that was, could do a lot of things. Um, it had to be tough. Um, it had to be, you know, longer boats are typically faster. So you wanted something that would be fast, but it also had to be stable. And you also had to be able to sleep in it. Like four guys had to live in this thing for almost three weeks. I mean, that's, there's not many boats that, that can do that. So what we picked was a Minnesota four, it was Kevlar, and we had a rudder on it. And um, yeah, this just wonderful man named Scott Duffus, a retired Lutheran minister who uh, I just absolutely loved to death, met him for the first time on this trip. And um, he's forever one of my favorite people. He, th- he gave, uh, what, 100 hours or so of his time, uh, just unpaid and modified this boat. Um, he put... Um, a, there's a, a skirt that ran the full length of the boat that we could zip and unzip. Part of it was a canopy that we could unzip and, and zip when it, we needed to. And that's what we slept under. And it had bilge pumps. It had, it was completely wired from bow to stern. Um, so we could um, run lights on it. And we had a tablet that, that we used to navigate the main channel. So it was just this amazing boat. We called it the, in honor of Scott, we called it the mighty Duffus. And it was, I mean, it was, it was fantastic. It it held up wonderfully. I mean, like Judd and everyone has said, some of that, it's pretty terrifying being out there, particularly when uh, the Ohio River, for me at least, met the uh, Mississippi and the water's coming at you from all directions. I think the, the river doubles in, in at least in volume when it hits the Ohio. So you've got this swirling mass of, of water under you and the boat's just rocking left and right. And and you don't know what's going to happen, but that boat just was was so stable. And um, yeah, I'm just so thankful for for everything that Scott Duffus did. Um, and we we had to poop and pee in it too, and we had modifications that let us that let us do that um, with 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 some degree of gymnastic moves. Uh, but um, yeah, it was it was wonderful. Um, what do you guys think about sleeping in the boat? It was really really hard, but uh, after you get sleepy, as you know, Jennifer, having done enough long distance paddles, you get sleepy enough, you can pretty much sleep anywhere. So we slept in the boat and um, yeah, it was just, it was just the perfect boat and it wouldn't have been so if it hadn't have been for, uh, for Scott. And he was wonderful at taking all our feedback and just really crafting a boat that we, we thought would work perfectly for us. And it, it absolutely did. Yeah. I can't say I've ever slept in a boat before. I don't think that paddling solo it's a great idea but (laughs) (laughs) if i if i could have i definitely would have (laughs) well jennifer i'm gonna let you in on a little secret paddling with four people it's not the best idea either (laughs) 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 
made you know the best of it. There was some quote, Paul. You were interviewed, and there was some quote that you had that has stuck with me. I can't remember exactly what it was, word for word, but you said how you were awoken like every time you went oh, down. Every night I woke. I woke yeah. up. So so we had this sleep cycle, right? So at least one person was sleeping pretty much the whole time. We sometimes all four of us were paddling. Um, but usually at least one person was asleep and we just had this cycle that we went through. Everyone got about seven hours of downtime a day, roughly. I mean, sometimes we couldn't um, stand to sleep. We'd rather paddle, but uh, yeah, every night when I was sleeping, I woke up to some terrifying scream from above. <laughs> it was, you know, it was either like, we're going down, here comes a barge or, you know, some craziness. There's a massive wake that's going to flip us all over. So yeah, I mean, the first night I remember it was raining near Minneapolis and uh and i think maybe it was i was the very first person i think to sleep after minneapolis yeah it started, oh, oh it was awful and the the bottom of the canoe i mean is we had these sleep mats that we rolled out they gave us about had like an inch of cushion from the bottom of the canoe but you know water's getting in there despite everything you, you try to keep it keep it out and i remember looking at that sleeping bag and thinking there is absolutely no no way i want to sleep inside this wet dirty sponge of a sleeping bag um so I climbed in there and like five minutes later, I'm out, you know, like I woke up an hour later wondering where I was. And then I, and then I had to go back to sleep and I thought, this is like, what was the word we, we came up with? Human soup. I mean, it was just this nasty, this nasty lurch, just slurry of simmering all day. Grossness in the bottom of the canoe. But like I said, you get tired enough, you'll sleep in anything. Um, but yeah, every night, every night I woke up, um, to terrifying screams and and there were a few that were warranted actually i think <laughs> yeah oh man i thought i thought you were saying that people were you know when you, you play the prank on people when you're driving the car the passenger falls asleep <laughs> and you scream and they wake up like oh my god i was like that's not very nice we, we didn't need to do any of that. That that was all like there. We didn't need to create any drama because it was all just built into the experience. Yeah, yeah. But then other times, you know, there were times when Scott and I were paddling that this one one night that we were laughing our heads off. I mean, it just we the, we ran the full emotional gamut. I mean, Everything. terrified screams, delirious laughter. You know, boredom at times too, but it was just, it's just a wild and crazy carpet ride. It was nuts. So, when you talk about, you know, support boats and support vehicles, so is, is there someone following you the entire race? And this is just for people that don't really know exactly what a support boat or a support vehicle does. And then, as far as, you know, do you have a backup boat? Like, what are the, so I guess that's, that's kind of a loaded question. So the first one would be, is this support boat following you the whole entire length of the river? And then two, um, I know there's 29 locks to St. Louis. Are you having to get off the water at all and, and, and portage around or what's the deal with that? Yeah. Who, who wants this one? Go oh, for I it. guess okay. I'll keep, uh, go ahead, Jay. <laughs> well, um, so the, until Minneapolis, the waterway is not navigable for commercial traffic. You know, there are places you get a flat bottom boat in there. In some of the huge lakes, you can get quite a large boat in there. But of course, at the start, I mean, you can just walk across it. And so we didn't have 
uh, a support on water boat following us until Minneapolis. And that story is another story that's worth telling in this show for sure. Um, but we had an incredibly sophisticated support and logistics team. And that without question is a big part of the reason, reason that we were successful. That team was run by, um, uh, in fact, Scott's uncle Moose, uh, Mike, Michael Doherty. And we had two camper vans that were known as base camp, sort of leapfrogging ahead of us all the way down the river. Then we had the ground crew, which was in a rover vehicle that went from the base camp to us on the river. And they would check on us, even if they didn't have to give us a feed or something like that, just to make sure we were okay. And they always had, you know, safety equipment. Um, and then we also in Minneapolis picked up Scott Mansker and Mark Hanley's boat, um, the Falcon, and they were in charge of the on water operations. Um, most of the communications with shipping traffic and things like that, locks and dams. And then we also had John Brady's boat, the Mobetta, and his crew as, you might say, like the backup uh, safety boat. And they followed us the whole way down the river. Um, so the team was definitely not just us. I mean, the, the whole team is what what won this record. And so it that's probably a good overview i would think so one of the things that was appealed to me about trying to set this record was that it wasn't just about athleticism or endurance although that's a big part of it and it wasn't just about technique uh and skill although that was a big part of it but it was very much about the teamwork and the logistics and the strategy and so have knowing that you know i can get really good paddlers and i can train up and try to be in really good shape but but I know I can also try to organize and have a support team of 20 people with boats and RVs and have really good food coming to us every 12 hours. And like the fact of the matter is, is that even if even if we were perfect, we still had to get lucky uh, because you have to hit the right water levels and you got to have good weather and you got to get lucky at the locks. You asked about the locks like <clears throat> you Guinness actually mandates you go through them if you're open. You can't portage around them. So if you get unlucky, you might have to wait at a lock for three or four or five hours. But we tried to grease the skids by calling ahead and having our support team visit and befriending the lock masters. And, you know, we, we didn't end up having to wait hardly at all at any of the locks. Um, but anyway, it was, yeah, it's just, it's fun to try to set a record that has so many components to it, all these different things to try to figure out, you know. Yeah, it seems like it. Like there's just a big, massive production going on behind the scenes that, you know, a lot of people don't know about. And I wouldn't have thought about that, the the waiting for the locks to open up. I would have never have thought that that was could could be an issue. So that's interesting. Yeah, we had to wait yeah. three times. Yeah. Um, and then we we had the a couple of times we the locks weren't open and we would have had to wait. But we were lucky enough to go around the locks in a spillway. So. so about training, um, you know, kind, kind of moving backwards, but just talking about training for this race. I know uh, you said Joe Mann hopped in there a few times when one of you weren't available to train. What did training look like for you? How much training did you did y'all do? And how did you kind of kind of make that work, even though obviously you guys are all living in separate parts of the, the states? 
How how did that look? Did you have specific dates that you set and kind of how how was that organized? Yeah, would we have three um, organized training trips? Is that right? Three or four? Where we I picked think four. Four, okay. Four. Where we picked to meet up at different sections of the river, including like the headwaters. We all met up there, and then there were a few other, um, yeah, three other trips as we went down the river. We met in um, Missouri, I think, for another one, and then in Tennessee, and I can't remember. Oh, and then Judd's house in Wisconsin, La Crosse. Yeah, we met there. And so, yeah, we tried to mimic what the experience we have out on the water. So we tried to sleep. We tried to do everything like we would in the uh, the actual tent. But honestly, uh, something always came up, like a storm. One time there was this massive storm um, in, uh, that near after when we left from Wisconsin, about what we were 120 or so miles in. I don't remember exactly, but a storm came up, so we had to cut that short. And then went down to Tennessee, and it was just brutal, frigid cold and massive winds. winds. And so we, we decided to cut that trip short just for safety reasons. And honestly, I was like, guys, we can't even do a training session without cutting it short. We're just never going to break this record. So I was a little concerned and it was downright scary at times, particularly um, one time we, uh, without the safety boats, we went past the confluence of the Ohio River at night while Wally and... Um, Scott were sleeping, Joe and I were, were paddling, and Judd said, you know, shared his this, his scariest moment on the water ever. Well, mine was that night. I mean, it was absolutely terrifying paddling out there with no safety boat um, when the Ohio comes in. And we were in the middle of a drought, so the, the river actually was narrower, and so the, the shipping channels were narrower, meaning the barges had, you know, that more, um, just had a narrower uh, passageway. And so we were paddling among these steel monsters, you know, doing our best not to get hit, scared to death. And um, at night, I was just, at night, <laughs> at night, at night, when you know you really can't, your depth perception is just not there. You can't tell how far these big, massive ships are from from you. They have these tiny little red and green lights on, and you think maybe they can't possibly be the size of mountains, but they really are until you pass them. It's like that scene from Star Wars when the big ship passes over and you just it just never finishes you know i think it's in the intro it's it's just, it was absolutely absolutely terrifying and i was too uh too nervous to call the trip thank god you did scott because you um you said this is too too scary we're going to stop right here but then i thought this whole time i mean if it's going to be like this actually out during the uh, the attempt then <laughs> i don't know how successful we're going to be but obviously it worked out yeah, I mean, we said that exact line like eight or nine times. Boy, if the attempts like this, we're not going to be successful. I mean, that first day we had down in in Tennessee, I mean, that that was awful. You know, 40 mile per hour winds, 35 degree water temperature, four foot waves and worse over the wing. I mean, it was just crazy, absolutely crazy. And it's like, well, if it's like this, what are we going to do? Just like hang two feet offshore and try to work our way down the river. I mean, yeah, we had some wild times on, on our training trips, but those were like our organized training trips. Right. We also, as individuals trained, um, you know, what, five times a week or something, you know, uh, with our individual training plans um, to get ready for this effort as well. Was there ever a time during the actual attempt that you 
were concerned that you might not set the record? Um, I, I, yeah, go ahead, Wally. Go for it. <laughs> well, honestly, once we got paddling, no. But for, like, physical there's thing you know dangers that happen in terms of like the 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 speed and the stamina and everything like that I, once we got going there was a really good vibe and a really good dynamic but there were so many different things at play and um that was you know when we hit those things that was when it kind of came back and was be like oh you know we're not falling behind here but you make one wrong misstep and everything could fall apart no hubris no hubris, yeah. No hubris. <laughs> no hubris was our kind of our motto where the the crossing of Lake Winnebagoshish, which is one of the first major lakes on the river, it's big and it's quite shallow, so the waves get huge with a fairly light wind. And the first what? How long is it? Like twenty miles long across? Or yeah, so? like fifteen. Fifteen somewhere in there. Mo for the for the first three fourths of it, it was glass calm and like the loons were calling and there's the stars were incredible. And when I say the loons were calling, I mean it was like deafening. It was absolutely spectacular. Yeah. One of the coolest nights I've ever had, right? I mean, just incredible. And then as we're getting closer to the portage at the end of Winnie, all of a sudden these waves come up and it's like we know paddlers have died on this in this lake before and of course amazingly scott has organized a support boat for us by a professor of something or other at bemidji state who goes by the name wookie right and and wookie is like got this big fishing boat and he's you know gonna rescue us if we go down and so the anxiety was a little lower because of that. Well, and I would add one thing too, that the day before we were on this lake, it was completely iced over. Yeah. So it, the ice had literally just dropped out of the lake. So when he was saying it was 35 degrees, that's no joke. The, the ice had literally just dropped out of this lake. So go yeah. ahead. Yeah, I know. So I just, um, I'm not even really entirely sure what my point was. <laughs> But <laughs> that's sort of how the stories of this river, oh, I was about no hubris. And so I think we all got taken a little bit aback by how suddenly it became sort of dangerous. I don't think any of us feared for our lives at that time, but it was also a situation where like, we can't screw up here. Not only can we not screw up because it'll jeopardize our record attempt, but it could also put our lives at risk. And so we all have to be on. And um, we all were on and we all worked together and we got real quiet and we got to the end of the lake and we went into the portage. And one of the best stories of the trips is, I think, was at that portage, actually. But uh, <laughs> but uh, we came up with this motto, which was no hubris. Like, we're not taking anything for granted here. We're not getting cocky. We're not ever going to assume that the record is ours until we're standing on the top of mile marker zero. And from my perspective, I had kind of already made that pact with myself. And that's sort of my, when I do long distance races, for me, it's always just get to the next place. Like never think about the end until you're at the end. And I think that generally speaking, that that's kind of how it worked for all of us. But so the other reason why we weren't panicked about, why we weren't overly panicked about our time is because 
we we started within the first 50 miles we had a lead and we just kept that lead kept growing it did at times we would lose a couple hours but it would be like we'd have an 18 hour lead and then we'd have a 14 hour lead or we'd have a you know a 20 hour lead and then we'd have a 17 hour lead but because we we had a lead pretty much right away that kept growing that meant our stress levels weren't were not as high as they otherwise would have been i mean it would have been we would have been much more stressed had we been three hours behind or seven hours behind or 14 hours behind right um, and to scott's point the times when we did lose time that was by design that that was losing time to actually make us better in the long run so we lost times so that we could sleep to recharge our batteries or we lost time because we were going to do something that was less dangerous uh, you know so when we when we truly did lose time during the record it it was it was by design it wasn't something where where we were losing time because you know we, we were getting slower we were scared or something like that it was you know okay we've got some time in the bank let's let's sleep for a little while and and, and go slower so like three hours in memphis when there were barges like this conga line of barges going up and down the river and the advice from scott mansker and the support boat was you guys just might as well pull over, let them go by. It's going to be about three hours and you just get some sleep. So, you know, we, I think we approached it very, um, just very smartly at, you know, once we had that, that banked amount of time, we were very methodical and we approached it um, in a very smart way, I think. And like Wally said, just spent the time in ways that knew we knew would pay off as we got further down the river. Yeah. I and remember- speaking, speaking of, uh, of ice i know last time i talked to you paul you had mentioned that there is a certain time of the year that you chose or not you personally but that that was going to be chosen to try to attempt the record because obviously the lakes and i don't know if rivers too do get frozen so you do have to wait for them to thaw out yeah so um you know, being from the South, this whole frozen over liquid water becomes ice thing was so new new to me. But um, on the advice of our northern teammates, they all decided that we would start in May when, you know, all the all the snow melts and all the ice melts. So we'd plan to convene um, at Moose's Cabin in northern Minnesota that was strategically positioned uh, on the river or all, real close to the river. Um and uh, May 7th, right? And so we got there and we were all excited and amped up and ready to go. We just kind of had to wait out. I think we had a record record late thaw date this uh, this year. And we waited, what, how many days? So I think it was a whole full seven days, wasn't it? We wanted to, I'm sorry, leave on May 3rd originally. But every few days we'd send a scout team out to Lake Winnie that we were talking about earlier. And it was still frozen up until May 9th. And we decided, you know what, as a team, we've all got jobs and families. We have to go or we just won't go at all this year. So uh, we drove from um, our cabin where we were all staging ourselves to the start, uh, passing close enough to Lake Winnie where we all got out and um, Judd and Scott actually paddled or tried to paddle Lake Winnie. And it was still frozen the day before our last, absolute last start date. And we had a little meeting beside the the car after that little scouting trip and we thought all right what are we going to do guys because we got to start in the morning um but the lake is still frozen it, it it was maybe passable but we didn't really know so um we all just decided that we're just going to go for it knowing that we had a full day from when we started to the moment we got to lake winnie 
And we were hoping that in that time, that passage of time, the lake would would thaw enough for us to get through it. Um, and we were uh, delighted to say the least when we got to Lake Winnie at what, uh, what 3 a.m., I guess, roughly. And uh, instead of the light, the moonlight um, glowing off the ice, it was just shimmering waves and it was completely open. So yeah, so it was all strategically planned to, to make the most of this melting water to get in the fastest current in the deepest water, but it almost backfired on us because um, we, we almost couldn't go because of the, the late thaw. That's wild. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot of things people don't think of, especially coming from, you know, warmer areas. You're like, oh, I'll just go paddle from here to here. And you got to think about all these little things. So kind of starting with whoever wants to go first, uh, most memorable moments. Like for, I know for each one of you, it might be something different. Um, doesn't necessarily have to be the scariest moment, but just something really that just sticks in your memory um, about the whole trip. And it could even be before or after during your training moments. Well, I'm going to go first on this one because I, I think everybody else will probably take this one. I'm going to take it first. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, um, Jennifer, we finished at night. Uh, um, the last part of the trip, we finished at night. And um, with about, when we left New Orleans and we paddled, I don't know, another 40 miles or so after we left New Orleans. And the water was just really, really, it was confused water. It was really hard water to paddle in because there were just waves that were just, it wasn't a straight, like, uh, you know, crashing type of waves. The waves were just all over the place. And that usually was a result of um, the wind blowing the opposite direction of the current. And, uh, um, it was just, it was really hard going. And we got to the to the last time where we were going to switch out where we were all sitting. And um, we did a pit stop. Everybody switched to different seats. And we got out on the river and we turned the corner. And as soon as we turned the corner, it was like glass. It, it Like the, the river just laid down and it was still light out but it was it was starting to get dark and the river was like glass and that was the first time that i allowed myself to think i think we're actually going to do this so we got onto that glassy water and we just started moving that canoe like a freight train all of us in sync moving it as fast as possible and as we're going because we're, we're so excited we're so full of adrenaline as we're going um, we've got our support boats with us. It, it, it's dark and we can just hear this big, huge rumble in the background. It was just a huge rumble. And lo and behold, what it was was a, a, um, a, a crew boat, a boat that would take the crews out to the oil rigs in the air, that were out in the area. And it was all full of our families on this boat. And no they were, way. It, able to follow along with us and, and, and uh, cheer us on as we got to that last stretch. And um, we were just moving the canoe in unison on this glass river. We could hear the roar of this boat and above the roar, we could hear our families. And uh, um, it was just, I'm getting chills as in goosebumps as I'm telling this story because it was- <laughs> You're making me want to cry. It was so <laughs> neat. And then we crossed that finish line and um, and 
not only were we there with our families, you know, it felt like I had built a new family with, you know, my brothers in the boat and, um, you know, everybody that was on the crew because, I mean, any one of us made one wrong move, the whole effort failed, but it all came together. We crossed the finish line and it was just, that's where my emotion bubbled up. And I have a lot more. The, 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 when we got on the, the mile marker zero is a whole other story. I'm going to leave that for one of the other guys because I'm guessing that that's probably a, another part or, or a, a highlight uh, that they've gotten. If not, come back around with, with me because we got some great stories about climbing up on mile marker zero. Well, I can I can say one, which is uh, just one that came to mind. Paul mentioned earlier that when we were in Iowa, he and I were paddling and, and Judd and uh, Wally were sleeping. And I'm going to tell this story a little different than I have before, because what, you, what what's so amazing about the river in the lock and dam sections is the pools of water between the locks have little to no current in them. And that was true in this stretch. And they're so big that it's really like paddling in a lake. And it's like it's like if a lake has some current weird currents in it occasionally, but then also has like different kind of old bridge pylons and weird buoys. And you have to like, like serpentine your way through all these obstacles. And then it's 3 a.m. And so you, and you're, you're, we're going off the navigation app and we're in the middle of Iowa and, and you can see for miles and miles in, but it's dark and you can see like a light from a farmhouse, like four miles away on the shore or even four miles off the shore back into the fields and it's kind of rolling farmland and it's a very rural area. So there's like no one around. You can you can hear a cow occasionally. But then we were near this place called Nauvoo and I need to look this up sometime uh, more, but there's this thing called the Nauvoo Temple. So we're all sleep deprived. Those guys are snoring away. Paul and I are chatting and we're digging deep because we're pulling now, you know, 300 some pounds through the water with, with these two guys sleeping. And so, and there's no current. So Paul and I are working hard. It's like an anaerobic exercise. And there's, and, and it's so, such a large landscape and everything is all dark and then shining miles in the distance, kind of up on a hill, like a mirage is this temple, the Nauvoo temple all lit up in white. And it just looks like, I mean, it's a completely surreal scene like you could never even imagine. And that happened time and time again on the river. There were these totally surreal things that you could never even dream of that your eyes would would take hold of. And then Paul and I were just having a great time. Like we were working really hard, but then we started laughing about stupid stuff and we ended up laughing so hard that we weren't able to paddle. And Judd woke up and he's like, what are you guys doing? And we were just like, we were just like pirouetting in circles, not, and, we, and like Paul and I were like, my, our stomachs hurt so bad we couldn't even function. So that was pretty cool. <laughs> oh yeah, that yeah, that was a painful moment actually. <laughs> My stomach hurt so bad. <laughs> it was like we'd done one thousand sit-ups in a row. But uh, yeah, it was great. Um, I think my famous or my favorite um, moment was actually like a series of encounters that we had. So um, I know the other guys feel the same way, but all up and down the river, we we had these people, these folks from who yeah. were following us. Yeah, on on Facebook um, or on the, the through the nav app, and they could they knew where we were, and so they'd just show up on the side of the rivers or maybe in some of the small towns along the way. There's a one town Clarksville that I think their whole chamber of commerce like showed up at one of the locks, and it was just this amazing outpouring of support, and people would just 
ring cowbells or yell at yell for us out out in the middle of absolutely nowhere um and and wave and families brought their kids I, this one uh uh family came up this mom brought us scones we got pizza we got <laughs> we got blizzards i saw a friend from college that i hadn't seen in way too many years and i'll care to admit but um yeah she just said hey i live near uh, minneapolis I, I hear you're coming by i'll show up so it was in the middle of the night and um somehow my my headlamp caught her face and I, again i hadn't seen her in you know many years and i just went over to and I, I just gave her a big hug and thankfully she hugged me back and didn't like push me away i really didn't know what she would do but it just i don't know i think i probably teared up every time i uh i saw these people because it was just it was just so uplifting and there was um you know very uh just amazing and they had no uh no other reason to be out in the middle of nowhere in um you know in mississippi or in tennessee in the middle of the night other than to just cheer us on and it was just um just incredible so boy there's a lot it's really hard to, to <laughs> i bet even nail down like five or ten i i, I would say that broadly this isn't going to be my moment but I would say that broadly speaking, the river is so beautiful. And there were some times in the river where we just looked around and we're just in complete awe. There's a, a big reservoir or pool, as they call them in Iowa. And like the colors coming off at the sunset, it's like every shade of green possible and every shade of blue possible and oranges and pinks. And, and then there's just like probably 30, 40,000 pelicans you know, migrating. I mean, it was just like absolutely incredible. Um, and then uh, in La Crosse, which is where I live, which is about 700 miles down the river, um, my my two daughters jumped on my friend's boat and followed us down the river for like an hour and a half. Um, and I actually got to stop and see them. We we had like a scheduled stop to get out of the canoe and switch positions and stuff just upriver of my hometown. And they were there and my oldest daughter just came and like, just like spider monkeyed onto me and wouldn't let go. And she was like, I'm so proud of you, daddy. Never do this again. <laughs> um, so that was really sweet. Um, so I, I can let the other guys say some things. Yeah. Had the fireworks there, Judd. Uh, he had a buddy uh, who set off fireworks for us when we went. This to was, yeah, fireworks. that was amazing. So, um, actually, a person who I met because he was a customer of my landscaping and construction business, and we came to become really good friends. He he came out and he get we we had all these like mega fans and supporters of our of our um, trip down the river. I mean, it was just remarkable, and he was one of them. And it, at one point on the river in La Crosse, he just starts blowing off like, you cannot believe how many fireworks. I mean, this is like 4th of July style show. And we're like, this is the coolest thing ever. And then 70 miles later down the river, he does it again. <laughs> he, goes down, he goes down to this campground in Prairie Sheen and lights off just as big of a show as the last one. Um, that's uh, That was Reggie Hannaful. Uh, I mean, just stuff like that happened all the way down the river and, it, and that it, that kind of support is is huge you know even when 
it's just quiet or when you're at your low point or, you know, I mean, sometimes you get bored, you're just bored of paddling and then someone lets off fireworks like that, or even just says something to you like, way to go. It's like you perk up and it just gives you so much more energy that you didn't know you had. Yeah. What's crazy is the, at the locks, most of the locks have these like viewing platforms that have like benches in them. And I don't know how often they get used, but because we went viral and we had thousands and thousands of people following us, every time we went through a lock, we'd look up and there'd be five to 10 to 15 to 20 people up in these stands, you know, cheering for us as we come into the lock. And it was just, and they would be light, they'd be uh, playing horns and lighting off sirens or like turning sirens on. And it was, I mean, it was totally surreal. It was, yeah, it was incredible. There is something I do want to say, which is a little bit off topic, but I'll pull us back quick, I promise. And that is that this notion of being bored has come up a couple times. And I, I have to say, and there was not ever a moment when I was bored. I was sad. I was scared. I was happy. I was like ecstatic. I was tired. I was frustrated, but I was never once bored. <laughs> and I even remember we, Paul and I had been paddling for a long time somewhere in maybe Illinois or Iowa and we were just flying and um I think we had been each going for like nine hours or something because something unusual had happened with the rotation and it it shouldn't be fun right (laughs) and I said to Paul I was like hey Paul are you having as much fun as I'm having and he's like yeah I think I'm having like the most fun I've ever had in my life (laughs) And I was like, is this really what God made us for? (laughs) You know, just crank away all day long. But it was just, I mean, there were times when it was so unbelievably fun. So we got there at, at, um, in the middle of the night, what was it? Two in the, two in the morning when we got the mile marker zero. Yeah. Yeah. Just after. Yeah. Uh, um, and like I said, when we were going, it was just like a culmination of all of our, all of my emotion, and I, I'm probably speaking for everybody here because we've talked about it. It was just all of our emotions together. It was, it all came together. We, our families were there. It was loud. There were spotlights on us, and everybody was cheering. Everybody was happy. And we get to mile marker zero, and mile marker zero is just like this wooden stand like an old (laughs) it's about 12 feet in the air 15 feet in the air like i don't know if anybody else can describe it it's like a wooden like a a dock that's about the size of a dining room table that's 15 feet in the air and then on this this dining room table there is a, a, a metal structure that goes up another 15 foot feet. And part of the tradition of when you hit mile marker zero, or at least in my mind, when you hit mile marker zero, you climb up, <laughs> you climb up to mile marker zero. You don't just touch the wood, you climb up. So we got to this point where it was like, all right, what do we do? We're all like charged up with emotion, everything like that. And I was like, I, 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 this is the way I remember. I'm sure that it was a group decision, but I was like, we got to climb up there. We got to go up <laughs> to the top of mile marker zero. And um, 
it, we all were like, okay, oh yeah, that's a good idea. But but with much trepidation, Paul's like, ah. Well, I was in the front. So I, I was the first one to climb up and I'm like, man, I do not want to do this at all. Cause <laughs> someone's going to fall off and it'll probably be me. And if, and it's just going to all end in disaster. Right. So yeah. I, and I don't like heights. And to climb up, it's like this rickety metal ladder that's on the side of one of the posts to go up the, the, the wooden uh, uh, dock structure thing. So anyway, we all managed to make it up there. And we're not moving around too much. We're all hugging each other because we're all scared of falling. <laughs> and and um, we could see all of the boats that were there. We could see the Mississippi River. It was the most amazing starlit sky. And it was it was just a, an awesome way to cap off, like an awesome emotional uh, way to cap off the the whole trip that we had. And, and on the mile marker zero, one of the things that's really neat is on mile marker zero there is a waterproof uh, box up there with a book in it, and everybody who makes the the entire length of the Mississippi River gets to sign that book. So we got to sign it with uh, the Mississippi Speed Record team. And again, they, they had the uh, spotlights. There was a huge spotlight from that. That man, it got a. <laughs> We're seeing fireworks behind you there. <laughs> it was perfect timing. Yeah. So we uh, um, the, 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 there was a spotlight from the the boat that our families were on, and it was just really neat. It was a great way to end everything. <laughs> <laughs> oh that's good yeah so uh, for, for every for everyone listening out there it's just all of a sudden the fireworks are oh and and smiley faces and everyone's clicking the emoji buttons <laughs> oh, that yeah. oh oh and then another funny part about it was is um so we're up there and, and we're done with this race or, or done with the trip and um I Judd turns to um, to Scott, and Judd says, "I'm not getting back into that boat." <laughs> <laughs> and Scott turns to like a really concerned look. He's like, "What are we gonna do?" And Judd says, "Why don't you just let Uncle Moose figure that?" <laughs> and the best part is that Uncle Moose figured it out. I mean, he did. <laughs> <laughs> so we went back on a fishing speedboat with, with our canoe on the front of that boat flying back up the Mississippi River to Venice, Venice, Louisiana. At three in the morning. Yes, at three in the morning. Oh, and then the other thing was just to talk about what a thin tightrope we were walking on this whole trip. Not Two hours after we got back, there was a huge torrential downpour uh, um, that lasted for a couple of hours that, that uh, um, would have been really, really dangerous if we got stuck out there during that downpour. Yeah, electrical storm, too. I mean, it, yep. was, it was bad. Well, yeah, that's scary. I mean, uh, definitely several races that I've been in, um, <laughs> the most... Most noted would be this year's MR340, just the crazy electric storms that came through there. It's like, <laughs> and if you're on the water and you got nowhere to get off, you are screwed. 
Yeah. I mean, there's literally nowhere to get off. And th- this show could last, you know, three days, really. But there are these things that branch off of the main channel on the Mississippi down south called shoots. And if you get sucked into them, like, you're probably not going back up. And in fact, people in motorboats get sucked into these shoots and, like, die. Um, what? Explain. Yeah. I'd, I'm... <laughs> I'm going to turn this one over to Scott, but they're, I just know they're scary, but Scott, Scott understands a little bit better about them. So it's a, it's a Delta thing. It's, it's because you're in the Delta and you're, you're just barely above sea level and you've got the main channel, but then literally in the shoreline, there'll be a little shoot, a little offshoot channel of water that, that's not the main river, but it just splits off from the main river and it and it shoots down like a waterfall, like a small waterfall down to sea level. And if you go anywhere near there, the, the current can be, the suction of the current can be so strong that you'll get sucked into the chute without, without uh, against your will. And in fact, the 2021 uh, MM0 team got sucked into one of them twice. And Joey Cargo, the local river pilot expert, river angel down there, who was helping them and who helped us a ton. Uh, he said he thought he knows of bass fishermen that have died in that chute. And when they, when they went down the chute, he thought that's it. Their, their record attempt is over. There's no chance, but they found an extra gear and uh, some adrenaline and paddled back up, up the gradient, back up into the main Mississippi and then got sucked down again and somehow paddled back up, which I can understand that much adrenaline because I think we all had that much adrenaline because we were so scared of flying into the chute and we were so committed at that point. And we were like a crazy train, you know, going to mile marker zero. But we were all nervous about it. Like, oh, my God, we got to stay away from the chutes, you know, and we were we were just our we were on the last frazzled nerves, you know, just we weren't any really in any danger. But it was like we don't want anything to go wrong now, you know. There are also these dredges, and when you think of a dredge, you probably think of like a Missouri River dredge boat or Upper Mississippi River dredge boat, which is, you know, this this relatively big boat that's got an excavator on it and it's scooping sand out of the river to keep the channel open for ships. But the dredge systems down in the lower river are like these things from Star Wars, and they're <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's two Star Wars references. Yeah, in, it is. Um, there's <laughs> been three. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're just like sort of terrifying. And at nighttime, they, they could be like 20 miles away and you think that they're four feet away. Um, And I, I don't, it, you know, they're obviously to manage sediment to keep the channel open for shipping, but I don't quite understand what they do or how they work. But you can see them if you go on like a, satellite google image of the river you can see these things are just gigantic and you don't want to go anywhere near them and so (laughs) we're just like don't go in the chute don't go near the dredge and you know really we were in such good hands um scott uh, miller arranged through this guy joey cargill um who helped us who is a river angel and a seasoned uh, riverboat pilot to have three other seasoned riverboat pilots go on board Mansker's boat and help him navigate through the last most dangerous sections of the river, what, like 200 miles or so, I think. Baton Rouge all the way. Yeah, Baton Rouge all the way to the sea. And um, 
And so we were in really, really good hands, but we were, we knew what we were up against. And when they say there's nowhere else to go, I mean, there's really nowhere else to go. And that's what's so crazy. This was a five-year project and the amount of knowledge and experience that were accumulated over those five years in so many different realms. For example, the support boat, like how do you do a support boat? How do you communicate via the marine radio to the canoe? And how do you communicate back to the barge captains? And when does the canoe communicate versus the support boat? And how do you communicate with the lock masters? And how do you talk to the shipping, the ocean going vessels versus the barges? And like these, these experienced pilots we got on board, they would they knew everybody on the river. So they're like, hey, Charlie, I see you at mile marker 76 coming up. You know, give us a slow roll and head over to the left bank, you know, and we'll pass you on the greens. And it's like all this lingo that we all learned. Got and you then, on the and we had these. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so, you know, it's just crazy. Like all these little things, like every time you think you know what you're doing, you learn even more, all these arcane skills that you don't normally need for anything else. But you know, okay, we're meeting a barge. Hey, we want to make sure we go on the inside of the bend. Because if we go on the outside, we know we'll get hit by a huge barge wake that'll, you know, probably capsize us. Just so all these little things. Crazy. So one thing we didn't cover was food. So two questions about food. Uh, first question is going to be, how did the four of you manage food, you know, liquids versus solids? I know everyone has different if any dietary restrictions and kind of what works well with your body and mind, um, how, how was that figured out and how did that work out for everyone? Yeah, I think that was probably the biggest topic of pre-race planning was, you know, how are we going to, what are we going to put our food in? You know, some people wanted jugs, some people wanted bladders and there's just this, you know, huge discussion amongst us. But I think we got, we got like real food twice a, twice a day, right? So we'd get this lunch pail. We'd, we'd uh, either meet our ground crew um, on the shore when we had to swap paddler positions, or we could get it um, our, from our uh, support boats. They, we couldn't touch the boat because that was against the rules, but they had these giant crab nets that they would put the food in, these lunch buckets, and extend them out to us, and we could pull them out of these big crab nets. And so we'd get these wonderful meals. We usually had what, um, like a like a couple hot meals and we had a big thermos of coffee and some snacks. And then each of us had our own on top of that, like our own like sports drink stuff, whether it's Gatorade or some sort of um, fancy concoction that we, we made, we had um, our own sort of um, drinks that we'd get um, every time we stopped as well. So a lot of, uh, and then, you know, a lot of tea as, as we made it, as we got farther down the river. So the beginning it was, it was pretty cool, right? So we were really concentrated on um, staying warm, getting warm coffee. But then as we got toward the lower half of the river, we were, you know, drinking Cokes and things like that, trying to stay stay uh, hot so or stay cool because it was so hot. So that was another interesting dynamic of the river. It's just so big and it's so long. You're starting at the start wearing – I'm kind of um, going off on a tangent. But you're at the start, you know, fully uh, wearing – puffy jackets and mock boots, um, as they say uh, up in North, mock boots. And then as you get further south, you're wearing shorts and like, you know, if, if you could find them, you're wearing shoes, although no one could find my shoes the whole trip. But um, yeah, so it was just, it was just crazy. So we had to factor that into our whole uh, diet too, like our liquids. 
um, particularly as we got farther south and had to really worry about just the, the, the problems that come with the heat, you know, getting dehydrated, getting overcome by heat. So. But that was the thing with, since this is like a super ultra long distance thing, and because there was four of us, anybody at any time could take a break and eat for, you know, quick shovel some real food in their face. And so because we, we set the record at 16 days, 20 hours and 16 minutes. And so you have to, you kind of want to eat real food. You, you know, it's, it makes a big difference. And so we had these special containers that would keep food hot for 12 hours. And all the guys on this team were really good eaters. So even though we were getting nutritional powders and high calorie powder drinks and things, because we were having to consume like, you know, 500 calories an hour, like we were consuming an insane number of calories throughout the day. Um, we did get a lot of our calories from real food too. And we would, we had these long handled sporks, like Moose figured out these long handled sporks that would go into the hot food container. And even though I'm paddling and we're all paddling, you could just quick take a couple bites and then go right back to paddling. The, the food was overall, the food was just really, really good. The whole nutrition plan was really, really good. You know, we all drank some kind of electrolyte fluid beverage of some kind. Um, and then we, I, t I took Perpetuum. I think the other guys took Piz. Spiz. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, what is Piz? Well, <laughs> a new one. <laughs> That's a combination of urine. <laughs> I was thinking, I'm like, do I want to know? I told you we're yeah, crazy. We all drink, yeah. We all and our sponsor in Bark, right? Yeah, with these and wonderful maple sponsor. syrup, yeah. Yeah, our sponsor in Bark, um, we added that to our water. And, and Bark is this maple syrup-based, um, you know, it's a high-calorie, high-energy drink. Um, mm -hmm. And you can either eat it like a gel or you can mix it in your water. Um, they're based out of southwestern Wisconsin. Really, really awesome company. Um, and so we, they, they gave us enough in Bark to last, you know, the whole trip. Um, and then we, yeah, we had real food and I, I honestly, I felt really, really good pretty much the whole time in terms of a new, from a nutritional perspective. So, yeah. And I, I think that's hard, you know, but between the four of you, I mean, for four people to have not at least one thing go wrong with the, with, with food, um, it, that, that's pretty incredible because that seems to be one of the biggest things that, um, at, at least I've seen and talked to a lot of people, um, that I've coached to do ultra endurance paddles or races is they're worried about nutrition and how it's affected them in the past and whether they're going to eat real food versus, you know, something like piz, biz, <laughs> spiz, um, and, uh, perpetuum, you know, by hammer product. So it's, it's a challenge. I yeah. Think we, oh, go ahead. Paul. I was going to say, I think we, you know, we just all as a team realized that, you know, it's such a long effort. And while, you know, I considered it a race, I think we all considered it a race. I, I always just imagine the the other team right behind us, even though they finished, you know, two years earlier, you know, so we were all just going as hard as we could, but we knew that the only way we were going to get to the, the finish line right. was by taking care of ourselves. And so, you know, if Jed was hungry, he ate. If I was hungry, I ate. No one was going to say, Paul, you've been eating too much. Let's, let's start to paddle, you know, <laughs> put the food down, put the fork down and pick up the paddle. No one ever thought that because we knew we had, we had to take care of ourselves. And so um, I think everybody just did a really incredible job, of not only the food, but their whole bodies. I think Scott, one time, you had said that someone in a previous attempt had said 
that actually four people, it was harder, they thought, to break a record with four people than two because you have twice as many things to go, twice as many people to have something go wrong, right? Like you said, Jennifer, you know, there twi- there's four people who could have stomach problems or hand problems or whatever, but I think we all just knew that we each had to take care of ourselves and each other. So I think that was a real important ingredient to our success. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the there was learning learning happening even during the trip because we all had three of us had like 16 water bottles or, or, or something like that or 12 water bottles. And the support crew would have like, let's say I had 12 water bottles. The support crew would have six of my water bottles and I would have the other six and they would get my six prepared. And then we would do a quick swap of all my empties for all my fresh ones. And everybody water bottles all had to be labeled. And then like if, of my six, you know, two of them might be water, two of them might be Embark, and two of them might be Spiz, whereas Judd, it might be a slightly different configuration. And they were doing all this at the base camp, but then Judd's partner ended up last second, like we came through lacrosse and she realized we needed help on the support crew and she figured out how to get off her job. And so suddenly Daniela injects this huge amount of energy and warmth and intelligence into our support crew and then she figures out at some point, hey, we should be doing, actually, actually the, the water bottles were being done on the support boat. And she was like, no, no, we should bring this back to the base camp because it's too, too much chaos on the boat. And so they just kept figuring out how to do things more, better and better and better. And it paid off. And then, you know, on the lower river, the, the lower river is really wild. Even though it's industrial in places, it is very remote. And so there might be a boat ramp every 90 miles in places. And if, and a lot of times those boat ramps are not maintained. And if there's a flood or something, then they're filled up with mud and, and logs and down trees and they you can't even access them. And so the, the support team would go to that spot thinking that they were going to hand off food to the support boat and then they couldn't. And so then they would just have to improvise and they'd have like sandwiches and Coca-Cola and the guys on the Mobetta, the other support boat that we haven't talked about that much, they would make us breakfast burritos in the morning if we missed our breakfast feed. And it was just, I mean, it was just so remarkable the way that everyone worked towards this common goal, which was to break the record. So what was the official time and how much did you beat the record by? 16 days, uh, 20 hours and 16 minutes. We beat the record set in 2021 by 23 and a half hours. Uh, yeah, 23 and a half hours, almost a full day. Yeah, we had really, we had like pretty much perfect water levels for the first half of the trip. And that's a big part of this luck. Like we hit the downslope of a huge flood, like a historic flood that was in the papers. Um, and so the, the higher the water, the faster it is. So we had ideal conditions for the first half. And then unlike the, the guys in 2003, there was just two of them. And when they set the record in 2003, that record stood all the way until 2021. And one thing that helped them is they got a huge push from the Ohio. We did not. We had less than ideal water conditions for the second half. So we built our basically 24-hour lead in the first half of the trip. And then we just defended that the whole second half. We didn't give really anything back but we weren't able to add to our lead either and so that's all the how luck plays like we had to be really good and we had to be lucky and the only way i think 
I mean, somebody could be somebody could theoretically put together a, a better team than us or with a faster boat, but the odds of them setting the record are it's kind of stacked against you because you have to everything lined up for us. You know, if if somebody got even luckier than we did and had ideal conditions for the first half and somehow got the push from the Ohio, then maybe. But well, it seems like after talking to you guys for for the last hour and a half or less or more. Um, it seems like it went by so fast, right? We've already been on the here for an hour and a half. Um, but it seems like you guys have, you've just created such a special bond. I can just tell it, you know, in your voices and your energy and just the way you guys talk to each other. And it, it seems like this is going to be a, a lifelong friendship. Um, are there any other goals out there that or paddles or adventures that you guys are planning on doing together or anything we can look forward to seeing or hearing about. Well, I, I'm going to take a shameless plug here. It's not necessarily shameless for me, but but uh, uh, Scott runs a series of races up on the Mississippi River in uh, the Minneapolis area. Uh, um, and Scott can speak to that uh, in a little bit. But there have been some rumblings of maybe uh, getting the band back together for for that for the one of the races up there. Uh, but Scott, what, you should explain a little bit about your races. So the the ultra endurance one is the MR 150, the Mississippi River 150, um, and it's part of the Mississippi River Paddle Weekend. We have a 48 mile event, a 25, a 10, a family event that's five miles. But the the ultra endurance is the 150, and what's cool about it is you get to experience one of the most beautiful stretches of the river, and it's where there's not any barges. It's in, it's above Minneapolis. And there's some portages, so you get to break up your paddle. It's 150 miles, and you have 50 hours to finish it. And this will be the third year. It's uh, June 7th to the 9th. And if you go to two paddles, twopaddles.org, you can read all about it, and we're going to open up registration soon. But the inspiration behind it was realizing through this project like how amazing the Mississippi River is and wanting other, wanting to share it with other people and give other people an opportunity to see how incredible it is, particularly the stretch above Minneapolis is just this 500 miles of, it's not exactly wilderness, but it feels like wilderness when you're on the river. There's hundreds of islands and there's there's rapids and there's channels and there's wildlife and it's really, really cool. So uh, in March, I'm gonna go back and I'm gonna paddle the Ritamaya Belize River Challenge again with uh, Sergio Lopez and um, Deep Betancourt. To two really good Belizean paddlers. Um, really, really excited to get back to that race. Um, logistically, it's incredibly difficult um, if you can't get on a local team to be able to do that race. There was a team from the St. Charles Canoe Club that went down there in the 90s when the race first started and drove a boat all the way from Chicago to Belize and then raced it and then drove it back. Gareth Stevens was on that team. I don't know if you've heard his name, but really, really major figure in the in the canoe racing world. Um, so I'll have that, and then in some way or another, I'll be participating in in Scott's race. One of them, anyways. Hopefully, with uh, some contingency of the of the MSR team, and then I'll I'll do the Asable um, canoe marathon in in late July again, and. Um, probably a smattering of smaller things here and there cool please tell me you're gonna do some fly fishing in belize 
you know, there's no question that I will be bringing my fly rod. And like everybody hears about, you know, the turnipy flats and the ocean stuff, but the little rivers are just as cool. And like snook move up into them and a bunch of other ocean fish as well as freshwater fish. And so you're just like standing in this little creek in the jungle catching I mean, it's just snook. It's just so cool. Yeah. Sign I, me up. Yeah. And almost all those Belizean guys fish, you know, it's all, it's just a way of life. So, yeah. Cool. Excited for you. will be stoked to, to watch out for that. What about you, Paul? Um, yeah. So I think uh, I definitely want to paddle uh, one of Scott's races. The, the 150 sounds awesome. I'd love to join my buddies here on the team for, uh, for that, if you guys are up for it. Um, and uh, I think I'm going to go back to the 340 and paddle with Joe on his team um, this next year, too. So uh, looking forward to that. Um, I'm hoping to get back up at the Yukon sometime soon, but um, maybe in 2025. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. What a beautiful, beautiful place on Earth, man. Yeah. The Yukon. If you guys haven't been up there, bucket list that because whew, that is just some beautiful, beautiful nature. I don't have any plans for, <laughs> I haven't, I haven't paddled. Well, I paddled once since the MR340. Um, I got on the back of a stern wheeler on the Columbia Gorge um, oh. in St Stevenson. Oh my God. I think my friend was pissed at me because <laughs> it was my first time doing it. And I was really nervous. I thought, oh my God, what if I fall off? And uh, the water's cold and da, da, da. And he's like, well, you just got to get on like, you know, the fourth wave and, Man, once I was on a surf ski too, and once I got on that wave, I guess etiquette is that you're you're supposed to stay in one spot because it, there's usually a lot of people on it, and so if you fall off, you're not going to hit the person behind you because you're all kind of stacked um, apart from each other on you know either wave two, three, four. That way, if you fall off, you don't hit the person behind you. And I'm just going back and forth, back and forth, like sir, I was. <laughs> He didn't even say anything to me, but I thought after, I'm like, wow, I was kind of a jerk. <laughs> but man, it was fun. That sounds yeah, amazing. Sounds great. Oh, it was so fun. Well, cool. Um, I really um, had a great time getting to know kind of what went into this this record attempt. It seems like, there, like I said before, there was just so much going on behind the scenes, and it seems like you guys got it really dialed in and you had a plan. I mean, it definitely wasn't something you just said, oh, let's just try to do it. You know, you really... It really takes a lot. It takes a village. You know, it takes support crews. It takes um, the patience of your families and your significant other, um, you know, because I know there's a lot of training and a lot of thought that goes into this kind of stuff. So good on you guys. Congratulations. And um, I don't think I'll be trying to attempt to break your record anytime soon, but uh, <laughs> maybe who knows? Maybe in the future, there'll be an all female team that will that will try to break your record. That'd be really cool. One of the uh, things that my sister chided me on, she's like, why'd you, yeah. pick, that's a hard one. Why don't you pick like growing the longest mustache or the, the longest fingernails? And stuff? <laughs> that's what I'm working on for my next record. <laughs> yeah. I, I can think of, I can think of several women in the canoe and kayak racing world that could give us a run for our money. Oh, yeah. For sure. For sure. For sure. Oh. That'd be neat to see an all, an all female team. Really cool. Well, and not only that, but, uh, you know, Tracy Lynn Martin established the record for sol the solo female run uh, uh, just like two years ago at like 55 days. And so, um, 
you know, you could you could do you could do a good solo run and, and see if you could beat that record. Or there's also now officially a tandem record, uh, which is like 18 days, four hours and 52 minutes. Um, so there's there's different records on the Mississippi that are are available to try to be broken. So that's out there for you, Jennifer. Go get it. Thanks. Thanks for writing it down I, right now. I do have to mention I do have to mention one more thing in it. In addition to all these other moving parts, we had one more moving part we haven't mentioned yet, yeah. which is we had a young couple from Montana that were shooting a documentary from the support boat the entire time. And they've got all the footage and they're busy editing it. And I think they're going to do a, a little fundraiser here soon. Um, so we'll be sharing that on our Facebook page. Uh, but they're hoping they're going to. I got to tell the guys this. I just found out they're going to set a deadline for when they're going to get this movie done, probably within the next week or two for sure. So I, I think it's going to be either late spring or summer, although I don't know. I got they don't want to they got they have a ton of footage. They have like hundreds of hours of footage to sort through and make a movie. And they made a movie about Dale Sanders, the graybeard guy that um, set the set the record for oldest paddler. And that was a really cool movie. So we're all I know we're all super excited to see what they come up with. Uh, it's That's not rad. the video I'm worried about. It's the audio. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of things in there that cannot be shared with the public. Like a well, lot. that's what makes it fun. We we yeah. want the we want the gritty. We want the Piz stories. <laughs> oh, <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> want to know about the Piz? So you guys have a website too, right? MississippiSpeedRecord.com, where you got some stuff on there. Yeah, and there's a lot of cool stuff on there, including the trailer, the link to the trailer for the movie. But cool. the truth is that the the most content, like all the live videos that, that we took and that our support crew took, um, are all on the Facebook page. So if you just search for Mississippi Speed Record on Facebook, you can actually go back and see like the live videos that were taken each day and with updates each day. And um, we had, you know, uh, people really, really got into it because it was like kind of like a like a live adventure show, you know, for five, 10 minutes, every couple hours throughout the whole 17 days. So it was fun to, to have kind of that live thing happening for that whole time. Absolutely. They're, they're on YouTube also, by the way, if you don't have Facebook, you can see it all on YouTube as well. So yeah. 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 All right. So there's, there's multiple places, you know, we can look and I'll make sure for everyone listening out there that I put it on the episode description, I'll connect the link so you can, check out the youtube the facebook and you know get ready uh when whenever the documentary comes out um please shoot me an email and i'll pop it on there too and yeah thank you guys so much for for joining me on my podcast i really appreciate listening to to stories of adventure and just you know setting setting really lofty goals like this i mean to me that's just incredible i mean if you really sit down and you think about it that is just in that's insane and that's what makes you know an ultra endurance athlete is us just achieving these insane things that even ourselves you know we, we're not a hundred percent sure that that we're gonna accomplish it or if it's even possible but once you do you realize i mean even though a lot of it does come down to luck, like you talked about, and weather, all that stuff. I mean, if you're not putting the work and the effort in to get there, it's it's not, it all has to come together. Right, right. Yeah. Thank you so much for having Thank us. you. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate it. And I promise you this time it all recorded. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, Jennifer. Thanks, Jennifer. 
And that's a wrap for the last episode of 90% Mental Ultra Distance Paddling Adventures in the year 2023. As you heard, a lot of work goes into trying to set a record, and it's not all about training, it's also about timing. Working with nature and letting the mighty Mississippi do her thing. That's how a lot of races are. Records are set with the help of high water levels, but nature can also be your worst enemy. Take this year's MR340, and if you haven't yet, check out the episode The MR340 is Ending Now. For more information on Team Mississippi Speed Record and their journey, go to the episode description. And if you're looking for gear for your next adventure, be sure to get on over to nrs.com. Happy New Year, and I'll see you on the water. I got into Ultra Thirds battling to try and impress my wife.